I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 176. We're almost to episode 200. Remember when we got all these lovely cards because we were at episode 100 almost? And now we're like fucking 200 almost. I mean, I know that's like 25 weeks away, but still. So what you're saying is that you want cards for episode 200? No. I mean, if you want to send them, send them. But I'm saying (laughs) I'm not asking. I'm just saying that isn't that crazy that, I mean, I'm literally looking at them because they're right here. on You're showing, telling me. Yeah, I'm just pointing to I'm fucking Vanna White right now. You're welcome. But instead of a pretty gown, you are mm, podcasting it up. I'm reading between the lines, and what you're saying is, I look fucking amazing. Yes. In your head. Yes. <laughs> you don't like my shirt that says good vibes with a uh, a teddy bear surfing that's dabbing? No. No. And my, my knee-high compression socks? No. <laughs> the only things I like are the pajama shorts that I think I pointed out. I was like, oh my god, I love these, when you held them up at Dirt Cheap. So I held them up, but you pointed them out? Because you were like, should I get these or should I get the other ones? Because they were great and they had white stripes. And I was like, no, the lacy ones. I literally got both. So you pointed them out after I found them? Okay. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, I may or may not have taken your advice on these pajama shorts, but you know who did take our advice? Patreoners! So thank you so much, Megan B. from Florida. Connie B. from Oklahoma. Gabby G. from Washington. Oh my gosh, Brianna G. from Minnesota. Oh, okay. Well, Lindsay W. from Oregon. Hannah S. from Massachusetts. Dana B. from Texas. Bree R. from Washington. Crystal B. from Iowa. And Gull S. from New Jersey. Okay. Thank y'all so much for signing up for Patreon. We hope y'all are enjoying everything. And if y'all want to shout out like those amazing people, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the APC podcast. And we know we say this all the time, but if you can't afford Patreon, we get it. But what we would love for y'all to do is to, you know, spread the word about us, tell your coworkers, tell your family, tell someone at the gas station, you know, whoever, wherever. If you're in the bathroom, you hear someone at the next stall, just tell them. Or if, you know, you don't like talking to strangers, I get it. Carrie would never. But what she would do is leave a review. And that really does help us. So all of that would be amazing. Any of that would be amazing. But we'll take all of it. Yeah. We greedy. And we're needy. Okay. So my story this week, just a content warning, is pretty fucking heavy. It came from a recommendation from Carolina P. in the Facebook group. So thank you, thank you so much for the story because it is really, really good. And when they sent in the recommendation, they said, he is Michigan's answer to Chris Watts. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, I am, I'm smiling only because... You hate him so much. I hate him so much. Well, you just wait. And why? Why do you do this to me? I'm not doing Chris Watts. I mean, hilarious Michigan, but you get the point. No, I know. Oh, I know you wouldn't do this. I know you wouldn't do Chris Watts because you wouldn't have the time to talk. Oh, I know. I did the fucking Tiger King live with you. Yeah, I apologize to everyone who watched that, but not for the earrings. The earrings were on point. So again, content warning. This one's pretty heavy this week. And I do want to say, look, we've been doing true crime a long time. And... All of y'all are just like us where you go to sleep watching Forensic Files, you go to sleep watching ID or Discovery Plus or whatever, and you know you can watch true crime stuff all the time and it doesn't phase you. But then sometimes you hear a story where you're like, fuck, that really impacted me. And it may be something that everybody else is like, okay, you know, but sometimes there's a story that just fucking cuts you deep. You know, it really impacts you. It just really impacts your psyche, even. This story was kind of like that for me. When I was doing the research for it, I had it ready, but I was still listening to a few, like, YouTube videos and stuff like that on it. And it was to the point where I was like, I can't, I have to stop listening because it's heavy to me. Now, 
With that being said, it may not be heavy to others. It may be one of those stories where it just, in the moment, you know, I've been on different medicine. I've been, that's kind of been affecting my emotions. So it could have been, you know, like stories affect people differently. And there are stories that people will say really affected them. And I'm like, oh, didn't, that wasn't that meaningful to me. But this one was one of the ones where I was like, damn, I don't know. It just impacted. I feel like I've said it impacted me 800 times, but it did. What I take away from that is that you're really impacted. (laughs) As soon as I said it, I I felt, I felt your energy like rise up. I was like, here she comes. I mean, that's what they say. But seriously, I do get what you mean about it. So thank you for the warning and now get on with it. Damn. (laughs) So we're going to go back to the early 90s around Detroit, Michigan. There's a guy by the name of Gregory Green, and he's married to Tanya Clayton Green. Tanya had two kids from a previous relationship, and at the time, she was six months pregnant with Gregory Green's child. There's not a ton known about this relationship, but it seemed to be good in the beginning. But one day, Tanya told one of her friends that Gregory was acting different. She said that he had become more aggressive and violent. And she told her friend, it was like something switched in him. And she was like, I wonder if he's on drugs or something. Like something is switched in him and he's just not the same person. And so she was like, I think I'm going to leave him. So she told her friend that she was going to go to church, come home, pack her bags and leave Gregory. Well, on July 14th, 1991, Tanya did just that. She went to church, and from our best guess is that after church, she went home and started packing her things and told Gregory her plans. He was having none of that. I don't know if he couldn't handle the rejection or if there was other domestic violence that had been happening, but when she attempted to leave, Gregory went to the kitchen grabbed a knife, and began to stab Tanya. He stabbed her in the cheek, the neck, the chest, her back, her stomach. And all of this was happening while one of her kids was upstairs hiding in a closet. After Gregory brutally murdered Tanya, he sat down, called the police, and told him what he did. So the police come and arrest him, He initially tries to plead insanity, but they did psychiatric tests on him, and they're like, you're fit to stand trial. There's no evidence. Like, you're fine. And so he ended up being sentenced to 15 to 20 years in prison. So Gregory Green, when he was in prison, was pretty much a model inmate. He had gone up for parole a few times, and his parole was always denied because Things like they felt like he didn't show a lot of remorse and that kind of thing, you know, because he had pled not guilty. And again, he just didn't show any remorse. And so the parole board was like, no, you killed your pregnant wife while her child was hiding in the closet. Like, no, we're not paroling you. With a knife. Right. Brutally stabbing Mm her. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when someone's going up for parole, they can do like a letter writing campaign type thing. So that they can get out of prison. That's basically what Gregory's family did. You know, his mom wrote a letter to the parole board being like, hey, you know, Gregory has grown so much. He's matured over these years. If you let him out, he's got a place to stay with us. We've got a job lined up. He's going to go to church with us. All these things. And his sister would write letters and say, you know, he found religion while he was in prison and he had this pastor pastor harris who wrote letters and in one of those letters the pastor said that he's noticed quote a great deal of growth and his understanding has matured quite a bit as well as his processing skills he said if he was to be released he would become part of our church community and we would help him adjust The pastor also says in his letter, quote, Gregory and I were friends before his mishap, and he was incarcerated. Mishap? His mishap? Mm. So it 
it was a mishap when he stabbed his pregnant wife to death. Okay. And the baby died. Okay. Uh, it was a mishap that you didn't say murder. Yeah. He went on to say that he was a member of the church and that he feels like he's paid for his unfortunate lack of self-control and the damage he's caused as much as possible. And he's sorry. Um, He's paid as much as possible. Mm, no, I don't, no. I don't. I don't think so. Well, Gregory had all these people that were supporting him, and I never saw anything where Tanya's family was saying, like, no, don't let him out, don't let him out. I really didn't see much on Tanya. Hell, they probably didn't think they had to. Right. He brutally murdered their daughter, their sister, whoever she was to them, Mm -hmm. and her unborn child. Yep. Well... The parole board also looks at their record when they're in prison. And his is almost spotless. The only incident that he has in prison is one where he got in a fight, like a fist fight, with another inmate over the TV. Which we know, like, TVs and phones are like the shit they fight over, right? You know, because we know all the things about prison. I mean, we watch Lockup. But it's like, okay, I watch Lockup. Uh-huh. And 60 Days In. Yeah. But that's his only, like, incident slash write-up on his record. And, you know, the guards are even like, yeah, he's respectful. He's does what he's supposed to do. All the things he's been a model inmate. Because that's his end game. Right. And his manipulation and Mm -hmm. all of that. And like I said, he had gotten denied parole in 2004 and 2006. But in 2008, he was released on parole. That's so fucked up. Some sources said that the parole board was comprised of more than five people and that five people of whatever that number is allowed him to be paroled. Some sources said that the parole board was comprised of three people and that two of them said he could get out. Yeah, that's fucked up. I think it should be unanimous. I mean, this person's going back in... Well, I don't know. And then you think there could be one person. That's an asshole. Uh-huh. And it's somebody, you know, or that you never know their. agenda. Right. And you never know their belief systems. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Well, it should be noted, though, that because of his good behavior, he would have maxed out his sentence and all in 2012. So he got out in 2008. So, I mean, four years is four years. That's still ridiculous. For him to have brutally murdered someone and... Gets out in 16... Yeah. Or 20 years based on his behavior. Yeah. Like, that's... What? I know. Well, once he was released from prison, he actually did exactly what all the people wrote the letters about. He was going to church. He had a job. And... He was, I mean, he was doing the damn thing. And after two years of being released, he was done with parole. Like, he was completely free, no more parole, like, cut the cord, he's done. Completely free man. And he did go to Pastor Harris's church and was really involved. And over time, actually started developing a relationship with Pastor Harris's daughter, Faith Harris. Faith had two kids in their teens, Kara, who was 17, and Chadney, who was 19. I think his name is actually Chadney J. Allen Jr. And over time of getting to know one another through the church, they ended up developing a relationship. I feel like we can assume that Faith knew about his past because her dad advocated for him to be paroled. And Pastor Harris is like a civil rights activist, and his ministry is really in the prison system. And so this is his passion. So it makes sense that, you know, they would be so welcoming and supportive and like, okay, you know what? You served your time. You've clearly moved on and you've learned from it. Like, okay, let's try this. Yeah. Well, it's good to know it's not just lip service. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They they really are like putting their money where their mouth is. Faith and Gregory ended up getting married. And just like with Tanya, things were going really well with their relationship in the beginning. They had two kids of their own, one named Koi and one named Kaylee. But 
just like Latanya, one day something just kind of changed. And he started becoming more aggressive. And Faith was like, I'm not doing this. I want a divorce. At one point, Faith had actually filed a protective order against Gregory. But it was denied by the judge for insufficient allegations for a PPO at this time, which is like a whatever protective order stands for. So what I gathered from the story is that basically he would tell her like to get out of the house, but he would keep the kids. But he was like being mean and abusive and like telling her to leave. But if you leave, like you're not coming back in. And she's like, well, I don't want to leave and not be able to get back in and not be able to get to the kids. And so in that moment, she didn't leave and she didn't call police because she was afraid that she wouldn't be able to keep the kids right then. And so after that happened, she then like the next day went and filed for this protection order. And that's when the judge was like, well, there's not enough evidence. So no. And I'm like, okay, so if a woman is saying that I need a protective order against my husband, like, do you not look at their past criminal history? Right. So, like, is it not a thing to be like, oh, well, they have a history of, like, domestic violence or whatever. Like, is that not a... Like, if someone's getting a protective order filed against them and I was like, you know, I don't really think there's enough evidence. Let me... What's what's their history? Oh, shit. Yeah, you get it. You know? Right. However, I do want to say that I did find in one spot from Wikipedia, one of the articles from the Detroit News said that... The judge that had like rejected it was removed from office for judicial misconduct involving her own divorce case. So, I don't know. Faith attempted to file for divorce in October 2013. And I think Gregory Green was able to do what many abusers are able to do. He was able to manipulate her into staying and make all the promises. And I mean, we don't know what went on behind closed doors, but that's my best guess because she did stay. I mean, he had to have, I mean, he is clearly manipulative. Mm -hmm. So she tried again in August of 2016. On September 22nd, 2016, at about 1.15 in the morning, 911 dispatchers get a call. It's from Gregory Green, and he says that he needs police. So Gregory had taken Faith into the basement, tied her up by the wrists, and shot her in the foot. He then took a knife and slit her face <gasps> from ear to chin. What weird injuries. Well, he didn't want her going anywhere. Then he took his two biological kids, Coy, who is at the time five and Kaylee who is four they had just had Kaylee's birthday and the decorations were still outside of the lawn oh gosh he took the two little kids into the garage placed them into the car and turned the car on he had blocked off the exhaust of the car with duct tape and made a hose with pipe and stuff and Coy and Kaylee both died from the exhaust, from carbon monoxide. Oh, gosh. He took their bodies, took them back into the house, and laid them in their beds. Now, Kara and Chadney are actually in the house. Gregory then took both of the older kids down into the basement where Faith was injured. He made them kneel down in front of Faith and shot them both execution-style three times in front of Faith. Oh, my gosh. I don't think I said this, but when he cut Faith's face, he used a box cutter. Ooh. Yes. After he murdered the two older kids, that's when he went outside and called police. When police got there, they saw one of the most gruesome crime scenes that they had ever been to and most heartbreaking. They found Coy and Kaylee laying in their beds, dead from carbon monoxide poisoning, that it should be noted, he had gone to Home Depot before to get the stuff to be able to make the exhaust system to kill the the two youngest. So this was something that he had planned. This was not a spur-of-the-moment decision like, I'm going to do this now, she's about to leave me. No, he had planned 
to do something because yeah. he had bought all of this at Home Depot. And then police get into the basement and they see Kara and Chadney dead execution style. And they find Faith, who is still alive, with the gunshot wound to her foot and the slit across her face. Faith ended up surviving. Gregory Green was, of course, arrested and ended up pleading guilty. We have literally no motive. Like, there's, we know nothing. He pled guilty, but he was sentenced to 47 to 102 years in prison. And so, even if he got out in 47 years, he would be like, well, over, like, 100 years old, you know? Yeah. So, he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. But Faith is so strong. She was able to go in a wheelchair to the courtroom and stood up and gave a pretty freaking powerful impact statement. She told him, you're a devil in disguise. You are a manipulator and like, we've got your number now, basically. She talked about how there's just this loss in her that is never going to be fixed. And that's what he wanted. He wanted her to live. He wanted her to hurt the way that he feels like he's hurt. I think this is my, this is my take on it. I think that he could not handle rejection. And anytime that Tanya or Faith were going to leave him was when he, he lost it. He could not handle it because he couldn't handle the rejection. And so he wanted to hurt Faith as much as he possibly could, because in his narcissistic sense, she hurt him. And this was the way to hurt her, was to kill her kids and make her watch it and then make her live her life, one, with a scar on her face, because she still has it, that she has to see every fucking time she looks in the mirror and live every fucking day without her kids. Yeah, what a shit human. She talked about in her statement, too, that her parents had both like been in and out of the hospital because of the trauma and the like literal heartache. They are dying because of the heartache her dad had a stroke could you imagine i mean he he supported this man and his mishap but he supported this man to get out of prison and then i wonder too he's a pastor i wonder if he officiated their wedding oh gosh and then he murdered his four grandchildren and brutally attacked his daughter yeah well, he's in prison for the rest of his life, which is where I think he should have been the first time. Yeah, he should have never got out. But this story, I think what, I mean, obviously, it's a heartbreaking story. So many people lost their lives to him. Yeah. For me, what was so heartbreaking about this story was thinking about the guilt that Pastor Harris probably has. And it's not his fault. He cannot control a human's actions. Now, do I agree with his wording in his fucking letter? No. No, it was not a mishap. He fucking murdered her. Like, let's not water this down. He fucking did what he did. However, that does not make him responsible for Gregory's actions after he got out. Whether he wrote the letter or not, Gregory was getting out in four years. But I just can't imagine the the guilt. And then I just think about Faith and just this... Can you imagine the size hole in her heart? Mm-mm. But for me, again, it was just thinking about just this hole in her heart that, I mean, she's just going to have to live with every fucking day. And I just, it like, it felt so crushing to me. Like, I just could feel the weight when I was doing this story. And again, maybe it's the medicine I was on. I don't know. But it was like, I just could feel it. And it just made me so fucking sad. Like, I don't know how she gets out of bed every day. A few things I listened to were comparing, of course, this to Chris Watts. And they were saying, like, why did this not get as much publicity as Chris Watts and all this stuff? But, I mean, this man literally killed his wife twice. Mm -hmm. But Chris Watts, like, played a part. Mm -hmm. Like, like a character. They were missing. Right. on TV. Exactly. That's not what this guy did. And so, people on a larger scale felt duped by him. And that's why... People were so like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. But on a smaller scale, they were duped by him. This is another one of those stories, though, that it's 
it's really hard to not be like, I wouldn't have ever fucking married him. You know, it's really hard to be like, yeah, but he murdered his first wife. Like, what did you, you know, you don't want to victim blame because we can't. That's not fair. Because, again, no one is responsible for someone else's actions. Right. But also, I wouldn't marry a killer. No. I don't forgive. No, you fucking don't. Mm-mm. Donna will eliminate you out of her life in a second. Donna will be like, you did me wrong. Bing. Bye. No ifs, ands, or buts. No qualms about it. Besides Marbu, she's mean to me all the time, but I keep her around. BG does. Because I brought Marbu up. She turned 10 on the 28th. Happy birthday. She's so old and I love her. I think that no matter what you think about the pastor's decision or her decision, no one deserves to go through what they went through. Like that is fucking horrible torture and trauma that they're going to have to live with every single day of their lives. Yeah, no, that's unimaginable trauma this affected you so much and of course we're on opposite you know i'm like i'm more tight-lipped right now just because i can't vocalize what i feel about it i guess i feel like you can't wrap your head around the decision to be with him right yeah it's it's i I completely understand that and i think that there's i think that this story can elicit some pretty strong emotions from people, you know, because yeah. some people are going to be like, well, she shouldn't have fucking married him. What do you, what do you expect? I'm not saying that that's what you're saying right now. This is an example. Some people may feel like, well, she knew what she was getting into marrying someone who killed their wife and unborn child. Like, what did you think was going to happen? Well, he's also a master manipulator and, had literally manipulated his family, her family, the fucking judicial system. I mean, you know, he had every single person that he came in contact with fooled. The guards, everybody. And he was able to live for 16 years in prison, which, of course, when you've, like, all you got to do is, like, get up and go eat and come back to your bunk. Fine. Yeah, of course you can follow the fucking rules. But he's a master fucking manipulator. And I don't know. I just keep going back to just those poor babies. Those poor kids. Yeah. No one deserves to lose their kids, especially like that. Oh, my God. In front of her. Like. No. I I truly do not know how this woman gets out of bed every day. Yeah. So hopefully your story is not as sad as this one. No, but mine does start with tragedy. Picture it. New York City, 2000. New York City. That's right. Were those commercials? Oh, yeah. I hated them. I know, but I still quote them all the time. Same. Clearly. (laughs) All right. This story is about the Myron family. And when you think of a blue-collar family in New York, that's what the Myron family was. Curtis, the husband and father of the family, he was a firefighter. Jeanette, the wife and mother... She always knew there was danger with Curtis's job, and they had both tried really hard to prepare their two daughters for any tragedy that may occur. However, no one really thinks anything bad will ever happen, and the Myron family wasn't any different until January 23rd, 2005. That's the day that forever changed the Myron family. On that day, there were two fires that cost three firefighters their lives and left four seriously injured. Gosh. In one of the fires, the firemen had to make a choice of jumping from the fourth floor window of apartments or being burned alive. (gasps) And Curtis Myron was one of the firemen who lost his life. That day became known as Black Sunday and was the deadliest day for New York Fire Department since 9-11. Jeez. And even though Jeanette and Curtis had a plan if something happened on how they would tell their girls, on this day, Jeanette was at a loss. She couldn't find the words, but she did find the strength. 
and she told them about their father's passing. It was a sorrowful day. They sadly will never forget. And according to Angela and Deneen, the daughters, it still feels just like yesterday when their hearts were broken with the news. So like I said, it was a big deal for the fire department. And so there was lots of press coverage because some said the firefighters lacked communication and that's what caused them to lose their life. Like they ended up staying too long inside But others said it was building code violations that caused this. So it was just a media circus. Because, of course, everyone's going to blame everyone. Uh Uh-huh. Well, and that just all compounded the grief that they were all feeling and made it that much harder to move on and heal. Jeanette knew that they needed a clean slate. And if they were going to heal as a family, she knew she had to look for somewhere else to live because they were staying in a house that Curtis had helped build. So she found this house on this one acre lot, which was unheard of in Long Island, which is where they currently lived, but they were more in the city and this was, you know, further out. And so she was like, okay, this is going to be the change we needed. Well, even though it had a big plot of land, there was a lot of fixing up that needed to be done with the house. You know, give and take. But you know what? Curtis's co-workers stepped up and they were like, you're still family. We got you, boo. So they tarped the house because they proceeded to work on it. They had to remove doors, windows, all the things. And that's why they had to tarp it. So like no elements got in, nothing was broken into, you know, all the things, whatever, contract shit, construction shit, whatever it's called. Yeah, you don't even know what it's called. (laughs) well Jeanette isn't a dummy and she was like okay we're installing security cameras and so they did all over the property and of course she could monitor them remotely from her laptop dang in 2005 mm -hmm. okay girl we see you right well the first night she was eager to see what was going on that night and just to see if she could catch anyone up to no good you know something that I would be doing nightly Like, forget reality shows. I just have that up 24-7 people watching. Mm -hmm. I'm creepy like that. Anyway, she's drinking tea or she might be weird like you and can drink coffee and then go to bed. But she's drinking and she thinks she sees something or someone on her property on that camera. But it's just a black figure. But it looks like a man. So, of course, she moves in closer because we all do that. We think we can get a better view, even though it's grainy as fuck. And it's not going to get any clearer, but we're going to move in closer just to see. Especially with 2005 cameras. Right, right. But when she does, the figure's gone. So, she reasons it away as being something on the lens, an animal, because it was gone as quickly as it appeared. And if it was a person, she would have been able to see them in multiple frames. Fast forward to one night, Angela, the oldest daughter, she was having a hard time sleeping, something Carrie knows nothing about. Well, she said that she couldn't shake this sense of unease. It was just this anxiousness that had her roused and restless. And then she realized why she was uneasy. Because right then she could hear sounds. There was this knocking on the walls. And the quieter she was, the more she could hear it. And it seemed to be coming from inside the walls, not from outside of the house. And at first it was quiet, but then the more attention Angela gave to the sounds, the more precise and forceful the knocking became. Unbeknownst To Angela, her younger sister, Deneen, she was experiencing something similar. She heard the knocking as well, but when she got out of bed to investigate it, because let's face it, younger kids are more brave than we are, she couldn't find the source of the knocking. She even opened her door, looked down the hall to see if Angela was playing a prank on her or something, but no one and nothing was there. When she shut her door, though, the doorknob shook and the door rattled a bit like someone was on the other side trying to get in. And so like any 
brave young person. She grabbed her flashlight, pulled the covers up over her head, and somehow fell back asleep. The next morning, both girls mentioned banging on the walls, and Jeanette dismissed them, saying, you know, it's an older house. It's settling. It might be pipes. You know, it's a new environment. We have to learn the sounds of the house. Everything's going to be okay once we learn the sounds. And the girls just kind of shook their head in agreement because what their mom said made sense. And they had both just had such trauma. But both of them knew deep down that sheer terror they felt when the knocking began. But they didn't let their mom know just how scared they were. And you know when you reason shit away, sometimes you miss the scary shit that's right in front of you. Like the time that Tom Ingram, one of Curtis's firefighter buddies, he was working on the basement and found a pentagram on the floor. And he was like, huh, let me, um, uh, Jeanette, uh, can you come down here? Uh, We uncovered this thing. I mean, what do you even do? Right. Well, she's like, um, we have to cover this. You cannot tell the girls you saw this. Like, speak of it to no one. Because they're already scared. It's a new house. You know, they're scared. Let's not scare them anymore. It's probably just like teenagers playing a prank, whatever. And they were like, okay, we can concrete over it. You know, good as new. But also, like, you miss scary shit. Like when Angela and Deneen thought it was really cool how big and mysterious their backyard was. Because again, they were on one acre of land and their backyard was full of trees and stuff. You know, it's like a forest. Well, in the trees, there were these symbols carved. And a lot of the symbols are what they called stars. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Then there were like Blair Witch looking wind chimes made from bones and stuff. Uh Uh-uh. But they were like, ooh, this is so cool. Our own magical forest. No, it's not. Right. And it was outside, not inside. So it wasn't so scary because it wasn't connected to the house where the sounds were. And they were so enchanted by what they found. They even made games. Like they hid treasure, a.k.a. like their toys, a doll, whatever, outside and made maps with the symbols for the other person to find the treasure. That's pretty fucking clever. It is. Well, it was their secret because they didn't think they needed to tell their mom about it. It was just stars. But just so you know, it was pentagrams. And let me insert my daily episode blurb about how we know Satanists are not devil worshipers and... You know, all of that, we know this. But this story was featured in Paranormal Witness, and a lot of times it was, like, satanic symbols and, you know. And it's like, okay, can we stop saying satanic? But, you know, whatever. I mean, a pentagram is not... I mean, look, I'm just going to be honest. If I found that on my floor in my basement, I'd be like, oh, I need help. Yeah, for sure. Because the people, I feel like, who aren't using it for weird shit wouldn't put it on the floor. Exactly. Exactly. So, a few days later, Jeanette left Angela in charge and left her a few chores to do as well. Because, you know, moms, they're like, get this shit done. So, Angela was cleaning out the kitchen. And again, she just was restless. And she felt watched. And she just knew she was not alone. Unable to shake that feeling, she was like, look, I'm not cleaning out this refrigerator. I'm not getting anything done down here. Like, I am freaked the fuck out. I'm sure she didn't say fuck, but, you know, whatever. Maybe in her head. But she shut the refrigerator door. And when she did, she heard this loud noise. And she looked behind her. And at that point, all the cabinets and drawers were open. So she was like, boy, bye. Ran upstairs. Well, when Jeanette returned, she was like, what the fuck happened? Did the girls get in a fight? Did someone throw a tantrum? So she was pissed because the place was, you know, like she came in everything in the kitchen looked like, oh my gosh, did we get robbed? No, don't make me clean up after you. (laughs) But Jeanette, you know, stormed upstairs ready to just tear into them. 
But when she saw her daughter and how shaken up Angela was, she knew that there was no way that she was the culprit. There was no way. She didn't know how to explain it, but she knew she could not blame Angela for it. Cut to Tom and his buddies working back down in the basement, and Tom comes across some papers. So he alerts Jeanette about them because they look old as fuck, and with all the creepy shit going on, he didn't want to be handling them. So he's like, uh, might have something about the house. Come down here. So Jeanette lays them all out, and she starts to read through them. She makes out that they're from 1927 when the house was built. She knows that the papers were written by a young girl named Christina, and she believes she was the daughter of whoever owned the house at that time. The other thing about Christina is that she was only a few years older than Angela was at that time, so it just really hit home with Jeanette. And the more Jeanette read, the more her heart sank and hurt for Christina, These papers laid out a tale of terror that she endured. She wrote a lot about her father. She mentioned, quote, he hurt me again, or, quote, he hurts animals. They bleed like I bleed, which Jeanette took to mean animal sacrifices. Well, even with all of this information, Mama Jeanette still was so sure that this was the fresh start that they needed And nothing bad was truly going on. Like, yeah, there is some bad shit here, but that's in the past. You know, we have poured concrete over the floor. You know, everything. Like, we found these papers. I'm going to put them away. And we have positive energy that's coming into this house. Until one day she was vacuuming and the entire floor began to shake under her. She said it was like an earthquake was happening, so she was like, okay, wait, wait, wait. Maybe the oil burner is backfiring, which I live in the South, so I didn't know what that was. Yeah, I was like, it wasn't an oil burner. It's something that they keep in the basement. I was like, like a kerosene lamp? I'm thinking it's like a furnace. Okay. Um, But yeah, I live in the South. I don't know what that is. But she's like, hey, let me go to the basement before... Everything freaking explodes. So she goes to open the door and she is instantly overwhelmed by dread. And in her gut, she knew something evil was down there in the basement. But she continued to go down and see what was going on. But, you know, she looked around. Nothing seemed out of place. Everything seemed to be okay. And when she couldn't take it any longer, she ran back up the steps and didn't look back that night. So, all right, Jeanette is keen that something isn't what it seems in the house. She's aware of the weird pentagram in the basement. Now, you know, what happened in the kitchen with Angela. And so now she really couldn't dismiss the knocking that the girls had told her about before. Everything is coming together. She's hyper aware now. Well, fast forward a few weeks and Deneen was showering, but was super uneasy because she felt like she was being watched. At that same time, Angela was hearing some disembodied voices. They were whispering, but just to that point where you couldn't make out what they were saying, but you knew they were saying words. So she's like, okay, I hear something. Let me try to follow these voices. Like, who's downstairs? You know, whatever. The more she listened, she was able to hear Deneen's name. So she went to look for her sister. So cut to Deneen being super on edge, feeling like she wasn't alone in the bathroom. And then that frightening realization that she was correct. She wasn't alone. There was this shadowy figure right outside of the shower. And so Deneen started screaming and Angela tried to open the door, but she couldn't. Like every horror movie we've ever seen, Jeanette heard all the commotion, ran up to help her daughters. And finally, just before Deneen was sure that the shadowy figure was going to attack her, the bathroom door flew open. Her sister and mom were there rescuing her. And at this point, Deneen was on the floor of the shower, and Jeanette said it looked 
like she was having a seizure just because she was shaking so violently. Jeanette didn't know what else to do, but she was just going to lead the girls like to her room and try to calm them down. But right when they got out of the bathroom, the bathroom door closed behind them. And then they heard that whispering again. And it grew louder and they could hear that it was chanting. And they said it seemed like a ritual was going on. And it started to grow louder and louder. And so they ran to Jeanette's room. And all she could think to do was to tell the girls to call on their dad to help them. And Angela, the oldest daughter, said that she remembered thinking that this was a time that she really needed her daddy. And if he was there, everything would be fine. And so they did. They, you know, talked to him, begged for help. And finally, it seemed to bring peace for that night. That was the last straw, though, because now her daughters were being attacked. So she asked one of her friends, Tony Bata, a corrections officer, to check out the basement and just to make sure that no one could get in from there. And also, you know, she told him about the journals from Christina she found and the pentagram on the floor and just, you know, trying to make sense of it all. So he agreed because he knew she was going through a lot and he was friends with Curtis. So he was like, okay, let's do this. He went down to the basement. He was investigating when a door started to rattle. So he thought maybe the outside air was making it do that or whatever. But when he finally opened it, there was nothing behind it. It wasn't to the outside. It was it was like a closet. So he was like, hmm, and went to turn away. And then the door slammed shut. Tony said he is only scared of his dad and his dentist. But now that basement is on that list. Damn. Mm-hmm. Also, when I first wrote that down, I put IRS instead of dentist. So I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> why did I say the IRS first? I don't know, but why did you say that out loud? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so Jeanette sought help from a priest. He walked through the house and he gave her a little vial of holy water, some other tools to use along with her faith. You know, like your faith will carry you through, but here's some other stuff. He didn't do an exorcism, but Jeanette was like, "Mm, look, that holy water, that ain't going to do it. And so he ended up giving her like basically gallons of holy water later on, but that still wasn't enough. One night, Angela was out swinging in the backyard because she just needed a break from being inside where she felt watched and felt oppressed. Well, Jeanette was in the kitchen and she saw that Angela was outside and it's not a well-lit area. So Jeanette was like, you know what? I'm going to pull up my laptop and watch her from the security cameras that we have on the perimeter. And all was good until... The next time Jeanette looked up at the camera and saw Angela basically surrounded by a group of cloaked figures that reminded her of that figure that she saw the first night that she was like, wait, what is that? So of course, Jeanette sprinted outside and when she opened the door, she heard Angela screaming for help. And now Angela's on the ground No cloaked figures around her at all, but Angela's screaming how they're going to hurt her, that they have to leave this house. They're not going to stop until they hurt her worse. Finally, Jeanette calmed her daughter down enough for her to tell her what happened, and Angela said that she was swinging, and the next thing she knew, she felt a push from behind, but it wasn't like a push to go higher. It was a push to the ground, and she heard a loud pop and felt really bad pain. They went to the hospital, and well, she had broken her ankle in several different places. Poor baby. Well, later that night, when they got back from the hospital, Jeanette took some of the holy water, and she poured it out around the swing. And so when I watched the paranormal witness, it just cracked me up. But you know she was at her wit's end. Yeah. 
and all this on the heels of losing like the love of her life. Right. And having to deal with your emotions, your kids' emotions. Yeah. Well, and now Jeanette's a single parent. And so sometimes she would have to leave the girls alone, like when she had to pick up Angela's meds or doing grocery shopping, that kind of thing. But when she would do this, she would make sure to do it during the day because the activity seemed to be focused at night. Why's the activity always going to be at night when I'm trying to fucking sleep? Right. Because that's when you're at your weakest. Well, I don't want to be. I want to be asleep. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, this one time Jeanette had left Angela at home. And so Angela was just chilling up in her room. But she thought she heard her closet door. It was like a tapping sound coming from it. And then it was shaking. But then this black figure came out of her mirror on the closet door. What? Yeah. Like the mirror kind of looked like it, like Alex Mack. Yeah. When the black figure bent down and walked through. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah, because Angela described the black figure as being super tall, like almost eight feet, with horns, a tail, claws, and she said the figure smelled like rotting dead flesh. Ooh. Well, Angela has a broken ankle, so she could not run. All she knew to do was to hide underneath the bed, and so she grabbed the house phone and called her mom. So picture taken when she's underneath the bed. So Jeanette gets home and there's no sounds or anything. So she's freaking out because the last sound she heard was this intense scream from Angela and then nothing. Finally, when she got upstairs, she heard this faint weeping sound, looked underneath the bed, and there was Angela, who was so weak, so scared that she had to be pulled out by her mom to get out from underneath the bed. Poor baby. Jeanette was now determined to figure out how to help her family. She took her daughters to her mom's house, and it's like three in the morning, and she like looks up in the yellow pages, does something, goes into mom mode, like mama bear mode, finds a paranormal investigator named Liz Milano, and she was just hoping that maybe someone in the paranormal realm would be willing to help her more than the priest did. She's like, I'm so sorry that I'm calling you at this hour. Thank you for answering. You know, and just kind of told her everything. And Liz said that she could just hear the despair in Jeanette's voice. And she was like, how could I not help? So later that day, Liz called her friend Don Jolie, a psychic medium, to help her do a cleansing and a blessing on Jeanette's home. Instantly, Dawn got out of the car, picked up on what was going on. She explained to Jeanette that there had been some cults around the area. That's what she was getting. And specifically in that house, in the basement, is where they would do some rituals. Well, when they did the construction and demo all in that basement, it started up and basically made an opening And those spirits were like, hello, my darling. Hello, my. Insert uh, WB frog. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, what? (laughs) But hello, my good time gal. (laughs) Yes, that's basically what they were saying. Or the genie. 10,000 years. Say it. We'll give you such a crick on the neck. I love it. So with all their cleansing and stuff, you know, they do the salt line around the property and all of that. They head to the basement. They heard chanting, screaming. Liz said it sounded like they were in battle. Then remember that shake, rattle, and roll door that scared Tony? Mm -hmm. There was this energy. They said it was like a fireball of demonic energy that came from that door all of a sudden right at them, but then it just disappeared. And when that fireball disappeared, everything was quiet. The cleansing worked, and the family continues to live in that house, and they continue to cleanse the house every three months. Now, that isn't to say that they don't see ghosts, because both girls say that they have seen their dad's spirit several times. 
Angela told The Post in an interview that, quote, I see my dad in this house walking through the hallways checking in on us, and it's nice to know he's watching. Okay, so I don't know what this has to do with anything paranormal. And maybe I'm way out of line here, because maybe this is the theme for this episode. But while researching, I did find an article that Jeanette was interviewed on, and it was about Angela. And at the time, Angela was 21 years old and had been in rehab and was 14 days clean at that time. Apparently, she had been addicted to heroin since she was 11 years old. The daughter? Yes. And that was right after her dad died. In that article, it goes on to say that she tried to numb her pain with other drugs like pills and stuff, in addition to petty crimes such as burglaries. So I want to pose a question. Do you think that she could have been making some of this up to hide her addiction? Like the swing set stuff, you know, like being by herself in some of those situations to hide her addiction? Or do you think her addiction could have been a catalyst for the haunting mixed with the trauma, you know, all of that? Or do you think that the house caused her addiction? I'm going to go with none of the above, Alex. I don't think that her addiction caused the issues in the house, though, because if it's really what they said it is and it's cult activity from before, then it would have been in the it would have been there before and doesn't have anything to do with her addiction. But could it be amplified from her addiction? Well, but I mean, that's that's any trauma. That's anything that it's going to feed on. Mm hmm. I don't think it's fair to say that it's her addiction that caught, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think so. Do you think all of it was paranormal activity all the time? I mean, impossible to say. I mean, probably not, Because, but I also am a skeptic. So I'm saying no, you know? Well, I'm saying knowing that at 11, saying that a lot of it was with Angela, and now it's coming out that... She was dealing with this addiction. Yeah, probably not. I mean, it probably wasn't. But I also think that probably majority of the time it's not paranormal when people think it is. Yeah. I don't know. Like, when I saw that article, I was just like, hmm. Some of the instances I could kind of rule out then with Angela. I don't know. I feel like that's a lot of responsibility to be put on on an 11-year-old. I don't think that's fair. Yeah. It feels ick to me. I could see that. I don't know. I don't like it. I, I said that I, it would probably be a little e, but after I saw that, I was like, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It feels ick. But I will say that a lot of other people have had things in that house. Yes. You know? I mean, you have the people who were helping her build it. You have the... I mean, you have the shit in the woods. You have the... I mean, there's, there's other people and situations and environments to confirm the stories. So is she maybe confounding a little bit? Probably. I will say that they didn't experience anything like a haunting. They just had the creepiness, seeing the pentagram, seeing the symbols. Now, the chanting and stuff when they did cleanse the house, for sure. So like I I 100% believe that because I... I believe anywhere has energy, you know, anywhere. And so if someone cleanses the house, I mean, would everyone have a fireball of demonic energy? No. But I feel like you would feel a sense of relief of any cleansing. Yeah. I feel like, again, I feel like it's putting a lot of responsibility on an 11-year-old, and that's not fair. That literally was in the worst moment of her life and trying to just deal with her fucking trauma. So even if she is seeing things or believing that things are happening, they might be happening in her world. We don't know. Perception's reality. So if they feel like there's something happening there, whether it is or not in their world, it is. And, you know. I think from both of our stories, all of them are survivors, though, like. From really bad trauma, mm-hmm. you know, and they're still like they're still going. They're still fucking putting two feet on the ground every day. Yeah, I don't know how. I feel like this. Both of these stories 
had a little bit of like an ick factor to it where it could get dicey assigning blame where blame isn't necessarily due, you know? So I think it's important because, you know, we always want to know your opinion on the stories, but I think it's important to remember that there are people attached to these stories. So like with my story, you know, if you, no matter what you believe of whether or not she should have or should not have entered in a relationship with someone that had murdered their wife previously, the fact of the matter is people were fucking hurt and, and murdered. So while we want your opinion, we also want everyone to be mindful that it's people attached to these stories too. And that you never know how you're going to react or what decisions you're going to make until you're in those positions and how you're going to cope, how you're going to cope or if you're going to be duped by someone who's a master manipulator, you never fucking know. Right. So I think that's important. Yeah, definitely. Oh, these are heavy stories. So y'all let us know what you think. Thank y'all so much for supporting us. As always, we really do appreciate it. But most of all, remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.